Hello, I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken-for-granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. This is Maggie Ramirez. I'm speaking to you now from Oakland, California, occupied Ohlone territories. I'm currently based at Stanford University at a cre- as a Creative Cities Fellow. And I have with me today my good friend and collaborator, Michelle Daigle. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Michelle Daigle, and I'm a member of the Meshkegwak, or Cree Nation. And I'm also a member of Constance Lake First Nation, which is located in what is now known as the Treaty 9 Territory in Northern Ontario, Canada. I'm joining you today from the ancestral and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish Nations. And I work on Musqueam territory as an assistant professor at the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia. So we're really grateful for this invitation from Vicki Lawson and Sarah Elwood to be a part of the Relational Poverty Politics podcast series. And this has really been a good opportunity for Michelle and I to think about our work through a different lens. Um, Michelle and I, for the past six years, have been developing um, a dialogue and attempting a theorization at decolonial geographies. And while we don't explicitly name this work that we've been doing as a poverty politics per se, colonial dispossession and racial capitalist extraction and the effects that these processes have on the communities that we live and work from is really central to our thinking. So we thought that we would begin today Um, sort of retracing our steps and how we began this uh, dialogue on decolonial geographies and where it has taken us over these past six years. All right, so Maggie and I met when we were PhD students in the Department of Geography at the University of Washington. And I was returning to grad school after a couple of years of working in indigenous communities in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. And before that, I was a master's student in an indigenous studies program. And after those several years of feeling like I was very much embedded within 
Indigenous communities and Indigenous knowledge systems, even though I was away from home, um, I suddenly felt like that was very much missing from my day-to-day experiences as a PhD student in geography. Um, and even though I think that that is, is starting to change and, um, you know, we're seeing more Indigenous scholars within the discipline, um, even just a few years ago when I, when I was a PhD student, I definitely noticed the, the erasure of Indigenous knowledge in different ways in the content and the scholarship that we were reading, um, but also just in people's general consciousness, right? Like that there wasn't really an acknowledgement that we were on the ancestral territories of the Duwamish nation and that those kinds of questions didn't necessarily um, come into uh, um, seminar conversations or, you know, just kind of day-to-day conversations around colonial dispossession and what... uh, what responsibilities and accountabilities that we might have, not just in terms of thinking about these, uh, you know, relational geographies of, of dispossession and how that connects different places around the world, but also what our responsibilities and accountabilities are by living on stolen and occupied Indigenous territories. And so this this is something that I thought about quite a bit, and um, and I kind of you know there were many moments where I felt like my experiences as an Indigenous woman coming from a community that has lived through generations now of colonial capitalist dispossession that that wasn't centered in many ways um, within the discipline of geography, and so. I was looking for other people to be in conversation with about these things. And um, and this is when, you know, Maggie and I started to have different conversations around similar concerns that we had, but yet different. So, you know, I, I don't mean to kind of flatten out the differences in terms of what my community experiences and, you know, what she was bringing into the conversation. But what happened was that... Um, you know, I think that there was kind of this, this this dialogue that emerged between the two of us, an exchange really of ideas and seeing affinities between each other in terms of how we were thinking about liberation, but also dispossession and violence. Um, and that we were, we were in a way exchanging ideas that I had been grounded in within the indigenous community from my own, you know, family and community experiences, but also from the breadth of scholarship within indigenous studies and that I was learning from her in terms of what she had learned from, you know, um, black, black studies, black geographic scholarship, and also, um, uh, Chicana feminist scholarship as well. Yeah, and, and I, I started my PhD, well, I started my master's first in geography at the UW back in 2008. And I think, well, when I, being a first generation graduate student, I really had no concept of what to expect. I went into grad school thinking that I was, it was just going to be fun to read again and like sort of an extension of undergrad. Um, and what I experienced in coming to graduate school was sort of a profound culture shock 
that it took me a long time to sort of sort my way through. Um, and one of the, th- the th- reasons why I felt that culture shock is one is just sitting in a seminar room. We all know the violences that happen in the seminar room. And I consist, my first year, I remember just being so overwhelmed by what we were expected to read. And again, like Michelle said, not really seeing my experiences or my communities reflected in what we were what we were reading and the ways that I did see them reflected were in ways that I found really exploitative. Um, and so I found myself as many students of color and indigenous folks do, um, really being the sole voice in the seminar room saying, but what about race? But what about indigeneity? You know, this sort of thing that um, I sort of felt like I was becoming a caricature. Um, And this was in my first year. And so it, for me, grad school was definitely a moment um, or a time of really profound political awakening. Um, and I say that in the sense of, in a very relational sense of um, realizing who I was, not only as a scholar, but as a person. And I think one of the relationships that most helped me cultivate and make sense of of uh, my own responsibility and accountability, and also what I what what I was trying to say was Michelle. Um, and so Michelle, I remember she came a few years after I had already been there, and sitting in a seminar room with her, and being like, "Oh wow, this is another person that like has a language um, that resonates with me, and is clearly like, even though I think it took a while before Michelle and I actually had a conversation about like what was unsettling to us." in these spaces, I definitely could see a sort of kinship in her um, from early on. And at the time, um, I remember Michelle being in seminar and talking about um, decoloniality from an indigenous perspective. And I, at that point, was taking a course um, in gender and women's studies with Michelle Abel-Bayan, who uh, that was on Chicana feminist theory. And this class was really influential for me because it gave me a language um, through which to reclaim a lot of things that I had lost through assimilation, um, being a second generation. Um, and yeah, that's a whole other conversation to have. But um, in Chicano Feminist Theory, I was exposed to this conversation of the decolonial, um, decolonial imaginary, uh, through the writings of Anzal, Gloria Anzaldúa um, and and other Chicana feminists. And it was a language that really resonated with me and sort of helped, through, as many of us do as scholars, sort of find myself um, on the map. By that I mean just like find myself in relation to others and, and find a language that, that helped me make sense of my place in the world. Um, so when I heard Michelle in talking about decolonization, decolonial, I was thinking about it through the framework that I was really adhering to. So thinking about it from a Chicano feminist sense, um, thinking about um, the influence on the border, on um, Mexican and Chicano people, Latinx peoples, and how uh, the border has really created this sort of severed sense of self 
um, or severed positionality and consciousness that is both um, that is very much produced by the colonial nation state and um, but also carries within it this ability to um, sort of have creative survival mechanisms that dispossessed peoples have um, to resist and um, sort of survive within these these colonial structures that we live within. So yeah, so when I started talking with Michelle, we sort of, I think at that point we were speaking different languages. Like we had the same words, but mm-hmm. there, but we were, we still didn't, but there were different conceptualizations of these. And this has been a critique of Chicana feminist theory as well, um, that, you know, as, the, as Tuck and Yang have very famously said that uh, uh, the decolonial decolonization is not, a, is not a metaphor. And I think in some ways Chicana feminist theory has fallen into that camp not exclude that entirely, but in, in many ways, yes. So I think that um, when Michelle and I started having this dialogue, there was a reckoning for me of all of, uh, all of my, the gaps in my own knowledge. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, so we sort of earnestly began this collaboration in 2014. Is that when we started planning AEGs? Yes, yeah. Um, saying, okay, well, we don't really see anyone in geography talking about the decolonial. So let's write a CFP and make something for AEGs and see what comes out of it. And we very much, we framed it as decolonial geographies. That was the first title. Um, and we had a tremendous response mm-hmm. from that. Um, I don't know, did you want to speak to that at all about our AAG? Yeah. Once Maggie and I had spent some time um, building a dialogue between each other, but really, you know, developing a friendship as well at the same time, discussing these ideas and developing the trust that was needed, I think, to have these conversations um, because we had, there were blind spots on both of our behalf. And I think that there are also really difficult points of contention that arise when you're um, trying to grapple with what decolonization means for indigenous and other racialized communities. Um, well, given given the, the, the divides that have been created between these communities because of processes of colonization, And also I think, you know, um, indigenous demands for land restitution and how that, um, that has sometimes also erased the, um, experiences and the histories and the ongoing, um, present of colonial capitalist and racialized dispossession and violence that, um, that other people experience now on on stolen and occupied indigenous territories. And so once we spent that time, I think, you know, once we had spent some time kind of having these conversations and developing that trust, we decided that we would, you know, that we would like to kind of open it up and really just connect with other people within geography, beyond geography that were, um, that wanted to have these conversations, but from a really grounded place. Over 
the years, a few things that we've tried to prioritize in these conversations is to first center um, the perspectives and the knowledge of Indigenous folks and people of color, but also to bring in people that are doing this work from a community or a a, a community standpoint, right, where they actually have relationships with the communities that they're writing about or talking about. And this has become increasingly important for us because, um, you know, we had that first session at the AG in Chicago back in 2015. And as Maggie said, we received a tremendous uh, response. Mm-hmm. We ended up having, I think, four sessions over the course of an entire day. Um, but interestingly enough, what we've seen over the last few years is how the, de- the decolonial has been taken up within geography and within academia in general. And one of the uh, concerns or critiques that, that we've had is that a lot of this work doesn't actually seem to be grounded um, in actual relationships and that people are writing about decolonization in a rather kind of abstract way, in a way that seems very disconnected from, from the knowledge and the people and the relationships that have really risen us up to be able to, to think about these things. And, and, and we don't take this lightly. Um, and that we understand that it takes many years of of relationship building before we actually have the authority or, or, you know, the privilege or the responsibility to be able to to write about it. Um, Yeah, can I go off of that? mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, like Michelle said, we, um, this has been something that we've been developing for many years, and it hasn't been until this year, 2018, that we've actually been able to sit down and start to cultivate a language. And by that, I mean writing out on paper, like, what do we mean when we say decolonial geographies? Like, I really feel like the first couple years that we did these AAG sessions, this is now going to be our sixth year coming up in 2019 that we're doing a session together. Sixth? Fifth year. Anyways, I'm jumping ahead of myself. But um, it's really, we feel, as Michelle said, like, the cultivating these relationships with an intentionality and a relationality is really essential to building a language that is that is um, respectful and responsible and accountable. Um, and one of the things that, that actually happened after our first session, we got such a tremendous response, and we actually were approached to be part of a publication, and we had like a lot of interest. Like it clearly was a very sexy topic in that moment. Um, but we didn't really feel ready at that time. Like we didn't feel ready to try to give a language to it. So we declined and we went on to see sort of how these ideas that we presented in the, in the sessions sort of became appropriated um, with, with a sort of carelessness and with a lack of this embodiment and accountability that we are, that we are talking about. Um, and, and to us, like this isn't just a trendy terminology that we're trying to develop. Um, to us, this is this is really something that we are embodying. It's a practice for us, a praxis and a theory or a set of ideas. Um, and so I feel like, in many ways, like this was the only. This is the pace that ne- it needs to go at. Mm-hmm. In our case, um, it we needed to have these four years 
of consistent dialogue and conversation and to really un- to really build an understanding between and amongst each other, between Michelle and I and between all of the collaborators that we've been so grateful to engage in conversation with over the years. And I really feel like every time we have like written these CFPs and every time we've held these sessions, we've really just sort of deepened um, our understandings. Um, and yeah, and so the, the relational is central to this, to these theories and to these praxis that we've been developing. Um, not only because of the indigenous ontologies that Michelle was talking about and like how that needs to be central in any sort of theorization and understanding of decolonial geographies, but also in just like, in how we see the decolonial expanding beyond indigenous communities alone. Like we are, we are seeing how these different communities are are working and thinking and practicing in tandem in relation to one another. Yeah. um, Just to build on what you were saying, Maggie, I think that it took us four years before we even started to try to write something together because we felt like the process of it was um, so crucial. And I think at the same time that we've been developing those conversations with each other and with people that, um, that, you know, that might be outside of our communities, that alongside that, uh, we've both we've both been doing a lot of work within our own respective communities as well and to, to try to figure out, you know, specifically what decolonial geography is, um, not only across our communities, but how a lot of our thinking on that that we bring into our dialogue is actually rooted from from the relationships and, and the knowledge and people of the communities, you know, that we work with. And for myself, it's very much been rooted within my own nation, the Meshkegwak nation. Um, but I'm also increasingly, I'm also really careful to, to also say that within my home territory, um, a lot of people identify as OG Cree. And what that means is that, um, even though you know it's Cree territory, there's a history of Anishinaabe or Ojibwe people, but Anishinaabe is the word that that I that we use back home. Um, that migrated into our territory, and historically they came there to work in in the fur trade, and then many of them stayed there. And there were a lot of intermarriages that happened between Meshkegwak um, people and Anishinaabe people. And when I think of my relations back home, um, you know, it's even though I speak from a standpoint of being a Meshkegawak woman, that I also want to acknowledge that I've also learned a lot from my Anishinaabe um, relations as well, right? And that there are many similarities between uh, those two knowledge systems. but I think just in terms of thinking about what a decolonial politics looks like for Meshkegawak people, um, you know, we use, again, like when you're using the English language or a Western-based language, um, you know, it's, it doesn't always fully encompass, I think, what, what that means from an Indigenous standpoint. And so I use that language of the decolonial but really, I think when I think about what that actually means, it's, you know, I'm thinking of, of Meshkegawak political and legal um, 
borders and everyday practices that really are kind of a, a that that counter and that are a different way of of making the world than what we know as you know as as how the world is being reproduced through colonial capitalist relations and and um, and forms of production, and so. Within the context, I think now of generations of colonial capitalist dispossession and violence within Meshkegwag territory, which of course includes assimilation policies that were implemented under the Indian Act, a really long history of resource extraction, which is ongoing now with um, mining developments that are being proposed, um, with uh, the systemic um the systemic uh, implementation of, of residential schools and generations within my family and community that attended residential school, um, and also the the um, the heteronormative patriarchal assimilation policies that really ruptured the um, the leadership and the political and legal roles that Meshkegawak and Anishinaabe women um, assumed within Meshkegawak territory. And so within this context now, I think when I think of decolonization, it's really about, well, how do we regenerate those political and legal um, orders and everyday practices and also the relationships, right? The political relationships that existed within uh, Meshkegawak territory that have been ruptured through through various means. Um, and, and so that was kind of, you know, that was where I was coming from as we started to build these conversations. And I think that more and more where my thinking has gone, not, not that it's left that, you know, not that that is not still a priority for me and not that that still isn't kind of what I center in in the community-based work that I do, but also in the writing that I do, but that I'm thinking about how that comes then into relationship with, with other racialized communities that have also been impacted by, um, colonial and, 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 colonial or, or by colonization and um, racial forms of dispossession. Yeah, and I really feel like, as Michelle was saying, the relationship, we are, we have focused particularly on indigenous and um, communities of color, racialized communities um, in the North American context for we feel like these are not only our peoples, but the people that have been most affected by um, processes of colonialism and, and um, racial capitalism. And that's sort of like what this sort of relational reckoning is about, is I feel like we, we all have like sought our we all make meaning out of our place in society by sort of trying to figure out what our own identities are, what um, what are the issues that are most pertinent to our communities. And I think a lot of us as scholars, we focus um, or we sort of embed ourselves in um, our particular positionalities. And in sort of like our cultivation of decolonial geographies, there is a reckoning 
um, as Tucking Yang called, there are conflicting decolonial desires, right? And so part of this process that Michelle and I have undergone is trying to pay attention to um, how within our communities there are um, sort of colonial residues that have caused us to um, both isolate ourselves from other communities and also maybe place blame. Um, and so part of how this, how we've developed this dialogue is also just a reckoning with within our communities and how do we move beyond um, uh, like the issues of anti-blackness that occur in, I know in Latinx communities and how do we um, move beyond just sort of where I'm from in, in the Bay Area, like there is a general sort of erasure of indigenous peoples. Like I was raised with no real awareness or knowledge of the indigenous peoples of the Bay, um, other than, you know, in you know that one week you get in history class where you talk about like, oh, the Miwok and the Ohlone lived here and now they're gone, you know? So, so I feel like this, this conversation, this language that we've been building is how to respectfully engage in these conversations, knowing that we are going to at times um, um, not always understand each other fully, but just approaching it from a point of really listening and of respect and of accountability and knowing that we're going to make mistakes and and still trudging forward because we are invested in one another's liberation. Like ultimately that is what we're after. And so these conversations have been to me definitely the mo one of the most fruitful things that I've had like through um, through my now my years as a scholar um, and just really thinking about like not only how does this inform my scholarship but also how does it inform like how I interact with the world and my own accountability to peoples in the places that I am from and the places that I visit um, and how to just be intentional um, and I think that's really where our writings have gone, um, Michelle and I both in our individual writings and then also in our collaborations. Um, we really talk about how we're just, there. there is no language for this. We're building the bridge as we walk on it. And so there's something really humbling about that, um, but there's also something really powerful about that because we, we feel like we are trying to cultivate something um, that that doesn't, it's still in the process of formation. Um, and so, yeah, so that's sort of what, where we've been going. And I think one of the, the pieces that um, has been really influential to our thinking as of late was Leanne Simpson's writing in 2017 on constellations. I don't know if you wanted to talk at all to that, Michelle. Thanks, Maggie. Um, so, and I mean, just to, to add to what you were saying, I think also within indigenous scholarship that there, by the same token, that there has also been an erasure of anti-blackness and other forms of racialized dispossession and violence. And more over the recent years, I think that, you know, um, that 
I've really seen Indigenous scholars hear that, like really hear that, those critiques and to try to account for that and, and, you know, in this process. And so something that really resonated with me with Leanne Simpson's new book, uh, which is called As We Have Always Done, Indigenous Freedom Through Radical Resistance, is her chapter on constellations of co-resistance. And it really resonated with me because I think it, um, in, in a lot of ways, it... What, what she's articulating, I think, is, um, you know, it, it, it overlaps with a lot of what we've been discussing over the years and what we've also learned from other people, right, that we've connected with and having these conversations like Madeline and Olivia Wheatung and like Mae Ferralis, you know, Olivia and Madeline who are Anishinaabeg and who, um, and who, write about indigenous resurgence from from that perspective and then also me Ferales, who we've connected with who writes about you know who works with the Philippinex community in Vancouver uh, um, and more generally w- within British Columbia and where she has um, sought to kind of you know work with her community to ask well, what what does it mean to be living on stolen and occupied? Um, indigenous territories and what might our responsibilities and accountabilities be even though many people from our community are here through various forms of of racial dispossession as well and and yeah and so but one thing that really resonated with me about um, Leanne's writing on constellations of co-resistance is she opens up the chapter by asking well what what happens when indigenous resurgence, and I'm quoting her here, um, risks replicating anti-blackness without solid reciprocal relationships with black visionaries who are also co-creating alternatives under the lens of abolition, decolonization, and anti-capitalism. Um, And I think, you know, as an Indigenous person, these conversations are not always easy to have within our own communities because of, you know, I I think because of the the divides or the erasures or, you know, the placing blame that you referred to, Maggie, that, that happens within our own communities as well. And, and I think also within the context of um, that there's so much to do within our communities. There's so much relationship building uh, that needs to happen. And um, and so we also don't want to erase that work and those, you know, those relationships that need to be focused on. Um, so it can be a really kind of tricky thing to, to articulate to, to people within your family or within your community. But having said that, I do think that more and more, like I see people being really open to having these conversations and um, to really thinking critically about what, what our own political organizing means if it comes into relationships with um, other political organizing that's going on uh, within different movements that are that are led by by people of color on our home territories, right? Mm-hmm. So Leanne's work has been really influential, I think, in both of our thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and we, as Maggie said, it's 
um, this idea of constellations is something that we drew into something that we recently wrote on decolonial geographies. But in doing this, again, I think because generally of the appropriation of Indigenous knowledge that we see within the academy, but also in terms of how the decolonial has been appropriated um, more more recently within geography and, and other disciplines, that we hesitated in drawing on land scholarship in that way. And I think also, um, you know, for me, there was the added hesitation because I also know how Leanne's work, you know, how her work itself has been appropriated quite a bit by non-Indigenous scholars. Um, Again, who who, um, take that work without really thinking about you know, maybe take that work that is very much rooted within an Ishnabeg, um way of thinking and way of being and then kind of just like plop it on to a completely different context mm-hmm. and really kind of forget about the place-basedness of that, but also the years of relationship building and of, of, of learning and growth that it takes in order to be able to write something. Um, like, you know, Leanne and many other Indigenous scholars, right? And so in doing that, I think, you know, we had a conversation around, well, should we actually be using this framework and and what what does it mean for us? And I think for me, it's also about, um, you know, as Leanne says, much of her work, she, she shares in a way that she wants people and her readers, and particularly Indigenous readers, to then figure out, well, how can you contextualize that within your own nation's knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So that we're not just kind of drawing on how she's come to theorize, you know, different things such as resurgence or constellations of co-resistance from a Nishnabi perspective, but that um, we more, you know, if we see something in that and if it speaks to us, that we then go do that work of relationship building and of learning within the communities that we come from. And I think that that's, you know, that's something that we're, we're both kind of trying to do, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think um, a couple of things on that. One being that um, one of the, like, contentious things that has come up also through some of our conversations is like the framing of settler and how that's also also like a really complicated um, term that a lot of um, racialized dispossessed peoples it's not um, you kind of hit a wall sometimes in conversations so I know for example we've had a lot of conversations with our our colleague Yolanda Valencia who really um, in the in the Latinx case we have just sort of the racial ideology um, of mestizaje that has really done, at least in the Mexican context and in in many parts of of Latin America, sort of the erasure of indigeneity and the sort of assimilation of this mestizo identity. And I think that's one thing that she um, has articulated to us through the years is, you know, my people, like we traveled before there was this border and so why is it that I, I come here now and I'm considered to be a settler um, when because I don't have any um, tribal affiliation in Mexico because I lost that to Mestizaje? And so she's really tried to 
to push in that sense. And that, and that's an ongoing conversation, right? Like, because at the same time, yes, there is that recognition, but we also have to recognize how, um, where we stand in, in relation to the, the tribes whose land we live on at present, right? So that's part of what we've been trying to, to navigate and, and weave through this language of constellations is like, yes, this is always, it's gonna be, not always, but it's, it's fraught, but how do we work within our own communities to build a better understanding um, and to sort of how do we move from here? How do we move from here? So like you were saying, talking about May Ferraras' work of just like how, how can we create a politics that is both accountable to our own communities but also um, respectful and working in relation to the, the peoples whose territories we are living on. This was a conversation that we rather ambitiously uh, tried to cultivate at AUG's this year when we were in New Orleans. When we organized a session on land and liberation with Willie Jamal Wright. And it was the panel that really, for me, provoked a powerful set of ideas from differently racialized peoples. Um, and yet we struggled to move beyond the individual ideas presented in the panel into a dialogue amongst all the panelists and with the audience. But one thing that I really valued that came out of that conversation was Willie's exploration of the deep histories and relations between black and indigenous maroon communities and the swamplands of Louisiana. And when he was talking about this, he was drawing on Clyde Woods's writings on the blues epistemology, thinking about how the maroon communities built outside of the plantocracy created these sort of new relations and identities in the swampland terrain. So really I was thinking through, so really it was about thinking through what possibilities, what constellations of resistance and coexistence have evolved over time and throughout history and how these are very much bound to the land and how these conversations that we're having and we've been having at AEGs and, out and through the years carry these long genealogies and geographies of how we pursue uh, collective liberation. Yeah, so I was really grateful to have had the opportunity to collaborate with yourself and Willie and to have um, these insightful but really difficult discussions with the other um, people, the other folks that were on that panel with us that day. And I think that we're starting to see conversations um, like this more and more within the academic space. But as reflected through um, the blues epistemology, I think that, you know, these conversations are only happening within the academic space because they've been happening within our communities uh, for a long time, right? And so we need to constantly remind ourselves that even though some of these conversations might be new within the academic space, they're actually not new at all in terms of looking at um, the long-standing relationships that have existed between a lot of racialized communities. Um, so this reminds me of Danae Scholar, Glenn Coulthard's work, his uh, more recent work that focuses on uh, relationship building between indigenous leaders, 
uh, here in Canada, and specifically um, the Indigenous leader Art Manuel, who was from the Sequetmec Nation in British Columbia, and how he was building a dialogue with Black leaders in Tanzania in the 1960s and 70s, um, and how they were really um, sharing about their experiences uh, of colonization and racialized dispossession and violence, but also how they were sharing about strategies of, of resistance and refusal and of resurgence. Um, and so those are, those are the stories that I'm reminded of uh, and that really kind of come back to me again and again as we continue to, to build these conversations now, today. There's so many more stories like that, that that can be told. And and lately I've been thinking more and more about, um, you know, what are, the, what are the stories that maybe, or that not maybe, but that definitely exist between Indigenous women and, and, and women of color too, right? Like these conversations that have emerged over the years and wanting to learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that that's also like, just to go back to the, as you said, the writing that we've been working on recently and sort of how do we theorize decolonial geographies, we definitely um, draw on a lot of inspiration, not only from indigenous feminist writings like Leanne's, but also from Clyde, Wood and Clyde Woods and Catherine McKittrick's theorization of black geographies. Like that has been a tremendous source of inspiration um, and how thinking about how we how we develop these theories, thinking about differential productions of space and how peoples produce space in, in distinct ways, um, and and also really trying to thread um, the conversations between decolon- decolonization and abolitionism, um, which is something that we that we tried to do in that piece, and how how do not only peoples but these sort of um, movements function as constellations. So how are they simultaneously um, working on their own issues, working towards the abolition of the carceral state and carceral system and the repatriation of indigenous territories and how are those projects or movements towards liberation, um, how how can those two um, movements sort of work together to envision futures, futures for for all of our communities that are, um, um, yeah, moving beyond the colonial racial capitalist project. So, yeah, I think more recently too, I've been thinking more and more about, um, you know, when we talk about liberation or resurgence or, you know, I think that what a lot of people will think about about, particularly if they don't have connections to to communities that are that are activating these form of politics, that people will automatically think about these larger social movements like I don't know more or um, Standing Rock or you know Black Lives Matter and you know so on. But something that I've tried to center in my work is how you know that that 
within the indigenous community that none of these more visible or larger forms of um, activism can actually happen without the day-to-day work that ha- that that occurs at the community level um, in different ways. And I think that that's something that indigenous feminist and uh, queer and two-spirit scholars and activists have really foregrounded in their work and that I've also seen very much present within Black feminist um, work as well, such as Catherine McKittrick's or um, Ruthie Gilmore's work, which look at more of these everyday forms of politics um, that, you know, that that these larger movements actually can't exist without, right? That, that that's the foundation. And so I've been also kind of thinking more about the affinities that exist between um, those ways, those ways of theorizing, but also of activating liberation um, within that context. And I think just to just to go back to what you were talking about in terms of settlerness, um, when you were talking about that, it really made me think. You know, we haven't really talked too much about the white the white privilege or the the, the whiteness that can be embedded within these conversations around solidarity building that that we're trying to foreground within um, uh, a more you know decolonial politics of, of liberation and freedom. And, you know, one of the problems, I think, in terms of settlerness is that a lot of that scholarship on settler colonialism, at least initially, but, but still, it has been very much dominated by, by white scholars who tend to recenter whiteness within their conversations on settler colonialism, but also on solidarity building. And, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, settler colonialism really kind of took off as, as its own kind of field. And now there, there, there's a journal of settler colonialism, which I think is important to point out that there are still many indigenous studies journals that are struggling to, um, to, to have recognition in the same way that the settler colonial studies journal has gained pretty rapidly, but also that a lot of the scholarship on settler colonialism has in a way erased earlier scholarship done by indigenous scholars who are actually talking about the same kind of processes of elimination um, and of settlement but maybe that didn't necessarily use, you know, that that language of settler colonialism mm-hmm. and um, and that we really need to kind of kind of decenter that, too, in the way that that, that we're writing about these things and, and, and thinking about um, solidarity building. And so when you were talking about the, the session that we did last year on land and liberation, um you know, I, I was on that panel and I remember we had, we had a series of, of kind of, 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 of reflections that were shared by indigenous panelists, but also, um, scholars of color. And there was a lot that resonated with me and I found it incredibly generative to have that group of people, um, sitting together and, theorizing and thinking about what liberation means from, you know, from our respective positionalities in the communities that we come from, but also trying to reckon with, like, how does that come into relationship with one another? 
And after we all shared, I remember there was this moment of um, where we opened up, where we opened it up for a Q&A and that there was this kind of um, unsettling silence that that um, took over in the room. And, and I think, you know, as we reflected about that afterwards, I think that I was in a position where I wanted to engage with other um, scholars of color on the panel, but that I knew that some of these points might be a, a bit more contentious and that I felt the, the gaze, like I felt um, a white gaze, in some ways a colonial gaze that still pervades the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I hesitated in that moment to have those conversations in that space. And and I think, you know, from there, we had this discussion on, you know, what, what spaces are appropriate to have these kinds of conversations is a big venue like, you know, like the AG and an academic conference, the appropriate space to have this, or do we also need to have these spaces like we do within our own communities where it's it is it, that we're, it is more of a private conversation, right? Where we're able to have these conversations amongst one another without feeling like we're on display for, um, for other people in this academic space that is still very much embedded in, in a gaze that I still feel as an Indigenous scholar. Yeah, I think that was a big learning moment um, for me, definitely. Um, cause I, I remember that same silence after everyone spoke these profound and really like just powerful testimonies. Um, the, the silence that followed and like Michelle said, the, the sort of gaze of the room, I just, I felt a paralysis. Um, and I went into that panel really wanting to hold space more than anything. That's why I decided not to be on the panel itself. Um, and and I think that I, I think I realized, and like Michelle is saying, she realized that maybe that wasn't the setting. Maybe we were overly ambitious, or maybe I could say we were overly ambitious to try to have that conversation at AEGs in a, in a big room. Um, because these are really fraught histories and, and geographies that we're trying to engage with. And... It's, it's not really fair to have, to necessarily open up things that can be very vulnerable and, um, and very difficult to like process and articulate in that sort of setting. So I think that that, while I'm still, I remain really proud of like that, that panel was, I feel like really incredible. Um, but I think that the response and like the sort of aftermath of that has made me realize that maybe we need to take a step back, um, Maybe, and in a sense, like in the same way that we've been talking about how we've been really um, intentional in the pace mm-hmm. of how we've engaged this dialogue over the years, maybe that was too big of a step um, to do it in this public setting and to have it really be the first time that we were, that the five of you on the panel were meeting each other, not, not all, but like some of you, um, and to be engaging in this conversation in such a public manner. Um, yeah. It was a learning, it was a learning um, moment. I guess you could yeah. Say. But I think that, 
you know, that, that just goes to show you in many ways how this is not just an academic exercise. Yes. For a lot of us that are having these conversations. Yes. That, um, you know, we're not just there to kind of perform our expertise on what we think the decolonial is, but that we feel very, you know, that first and foremost, that at least for myself, that I see the work that I'm doing as a scholar really just as an extension of what I see as the larger work that needs to be done within my community, right? And that in many ways, my role within the academy is to strategically kind of, you know, use whatever resources or, you know, the the privileges that we do have as scholars um, to, to put that towards things that actually matter within my community. And, and I think that that's, you know, that's something that, that, that came up that day and that, um, it's so much more difficult when you're thinking about this in in real life and where do we Mm -hmm. go? Where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of actually, um, actually embodying a politics and, and, and practices on a day-to-day basis where we're bringing those more into relationship with, with, with other folks and the work that they're doing. It's, It's not always easy. Yeah, definitely. I think that's ultimately what has brought you and I together, Michelle, is um, that we're not just writing this to get another publication. You know what I mean? Like that's that we that we bring we we are very invested in in these conversations and and what they represent and take shape in academic in an academic sense is like yes, it's part of it, but it's not. I think ultimately it's we're building something, we're trying to build something bigger than that um, and how it really is a praxis. Yeah, yeah, and some of that might be more visible, you know, within different academic spaces or forums. And then I think that some of it is inevitably, it's not going to be and it's not supposed to be either, right? It's not supposed to be visible. Um, Yeah. It's not for consumption. Um, Yes. So ultimately, I think that's what's been um, valuable about this format of the Relational Poverty podcast. Um, It's just thinking about how these conversations that we've been having are building sort of a relational accountability um, that, that I see the RPN is really representing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that just in terms of, I, I, I know that something that, 
some people that are involved in the Relational Poverty Network are interested in in discussing more and thinking about how how this might play into to the current you know to to the current work that's being done within the network is to think about how um, how relationality can be conceptualized but also activated from different standpoints and and you know and for myself uh, I'll say it again I think it's it's always been about well how do we embody relations of accountability um, when we situate those on the indigenous territories that we're living and working on mm-hmm. and and I think in that way also if we go back to I think some of the really um, crucial critiques that have been mounted against this 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 idea uh, not this idea but this identity of the settler is that if we just ask that question then I think each and every one of us can start to think about what that means as it's embedded in the ways that we're implicated or um, how we might benefit from you know in some cases from colonization from the ongoing colonization of indigenous lands and people Mm -hmm. and also of um, racial capitalism and white white supremacy yeah (laughs) yeah and so even for myself when i think about that question it means something quite different when i'm on mashkegwak territory than what it means for me to now be living here on um, coast salish territories as an uninvited visitor and I use that language because I actually have not formally been welcomed in a legal way onto these territories in the way that um, Coast Salish nations do here, you know, how they've historically done that and continue to do that. And my own kinship relations, the connections are not so apparent here in the same way that, you know, some of my colleagues who come from nations that are more regional, so even though they're they're not living on their home territories while they're living here in Vancouver, that the political and economic and legal relationships that exist between their nation and the nations here in what's now known as Vancouver are actually, you know, much stronger and much more apparent than they might be between myself coming from the Cree nation being here. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't then have a responsibility to kind of build those relationships so that, um, you know, future generations of people from my community or family, when they come here, that people will know, you know, that, oh, yes, like you, this is who your relations are and that um, that we know that they've acted here in, in an accountable way and that that actually means something, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think that we can all ask those questions in, in different in different ways. Yeah, from the places that we live, work, and are situated within. Absolutely. Yeah. I think on the flip side of that, um, Indigenous people are also trying to think about, well, what does it also mean to welcome people mm. into our territories according to our own legal practices, our own political diplomacies, and how that's actually an act of reclamation—not just of our, of our, you know, of our territories, of, of the authority or the 
the responsibilities that we have over our territories, but also more generally of of governance practices, right, that have been ruptured um, through um, through the generations of colonization. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening and being a part of this dialogue with us. Um, we would be happy to hear from anyone with your reflections so we know this podcast isn't just going out into the void. Um, thank you again to Vicki Lawson and Sarah Elwood for inviting us to take part and just seeing where this dialogue continues to take us. Yeah, thank you so much, everyone. And um, and I'd also like to extend my thanks to, to Sarah and Vicki and to the Relational Poverty Network and also, of course, to Maggie for... Um, yeah, for all the the time, the time, energy, and 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 really care and love that that you've put into um, the conversations that we've had in, into this relationship. So, oh my goodness, I can't even start to thank you, Michelle. So, I'll just say thank you. I've enjoyed every moment of it. <laughs>